Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses 38 through 48. We're going to take the rest of chapter 5 today. And uh, so Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. God, we ask that you would, uh, by the power of your Spirit, enlighten our eyes and open our hearts. God, make Make us soft and receptive to your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our capacity to believe, to trust you, uh, to depend on you, to treasure you. I pray, Father, that you would move our wills into, into the posture of obedience, that we would truly be willing to do whatever you call us to do, trusting, God, that you're never wrong, that you are perfect in every way, that you're a good father, that you know how to provide for us, you know how to take care of us. And so, Lord, help us to submit ourselves into your hands this morning. God, please take away any any root of unbelief or rebellion or trying to discard the word of God. Father, give us hearts to believe and to obey today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, continuing with the Sermon on the Mount about the righteousness of the kingdom of God. If you've been with us for the last uh, month, month and a half, uh, we've been on this kind of same theme through, through uh, the sermon talking about a heart righteousness that God gives to his people, all right? That is very much different than the righteousness of the rule keepers that, uh, that surrounded Jesus in, in his day. And so in Matthew 5, 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if all you have is a rule-keeping righteousness, if all you have is, is this self-righteousness of manipulating rules and standards so as to produce kind of your good enoughness, okay? It's really the most popular religion in America. It's the I'm a good person. It's the, you know, I've lived in a good way. It's that I'm, I'm judging my own life according to my own standards. That, that was very popular in Jesus' day as well. And Jesus is contrasting that with this heart righteousness uh, that, that, that he describes for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he does that in a bunch of different ways. So back in verse 21, he started out by, by describing what the scribes and the Pharisees said about the commandment not to murder. So he takes the sixth commandment. 
in. He says, all right, here's what you hear. You hear, you know, well, hey, as long as you haven't killed anybody, as long as you haven't stabbed or bludgeoned or drowned or poisoned anybody, then you're righteous, right? You've obeyed the command. You can stand before God and say, look, man, I've, I've obeyed all your commands, and so you need to let me into your heaven. And Jesus says, man, you're missing, you're missing the word of God. You're missing the, 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 the heart of, of God's commands. God's command is not just that you not murder anybody. God, God doesn't want you to live in anger. He doesn't want you to live in resentment. He doesn't want you to live in, in, in violence and vengeance and retaliation and, and eat up on the inside with your frustration and irritation with other people. That's not the way God wants you to live. That is not righteousness. To say, well, I haven't killed anybody, but you know, I've been seething with bitterness and anger. In fact, I couldn't even sing this morning because I'm so mad on the inside. Hey, that's not God's standard of righteousness. Then he goes to the to other areas. In verse 27, he talks about uh, the seventh commandment, not, not seventh commandment, not to commit adultery. And, and he talks about how the scribes and Pharisees only looked at that as as long as I have not, you know, uh, had a sexual relationship with somebody else's spouse, then I'm righteous. But Jesus unfolds the heart of that commandment and says, you know, it's God's righteousness for you that you not lust after someone that's not your spouse, that you not be addicted to pornography, that you not sexually harass, that you not be flirtatious in, in your heart toward the opposite sex. He goes on in verse uh, 20 or verse 31, teaching on marriage. And essentially the scribes and the Pharisees, their standard of righteousness for marriage was simply this, make sure it's legal. Make sure, you know, if you, if you lust after somebody and you, you want them as your spouse instead of the one you have, then just make sure you've signed the paperwork. Make sure you give them a certificate of divorce. And that's how they had minimalized God's command. And of course, Jesus unfolds that command that says, God's heart for you is that you be covenant keepers. God's heart for you is that you love your spouse as Christ has loved the church. That's the righteousness of the kingdom. And then last week in verse 33, the scribes and the Pharisees, their standard of righteousness concerning truth was basically you don't lie if you happen to swear on God's name. You know, but any, anything else, well, there's probably room for fudging. You know, if you swear on Jerusalem, if you swear on, on heaven or earth or the temple or your house or your grandmother's grave or whatever, well, then there's probably certain circumstances that you can, you can get out of that if you need to. You know, if, if it doesn't turn out well for you, if you made a promise that was really a dumb promise and you shouldn't have made it, well, as long as you didn't swear on God's name, well, then you're okay. And Jesus unfolds the righteousness of God's truth that your yes should be yes and your no should be no. In other words, anytime you give your word, you should keep your word. You should be a person who loves and embraces truth. And so, so Jesus is unfolding for us the righteousness of the kingdom of God. And this morning, Jesus is dealing with maybe, maybe, maybe one topic that actually kind of sums up all the ones that we've just been through. And that is the way that we love others, particularly the way that we love our enemy. All right? Now, he follows the same pattern, okay? So he gives the standard of, uh, of righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees said. So it's like, all right, these guys, these rule keepers, they're, they're, they're trying to be righteous in this way, but I tell you this, all right? So he follows the same pattern, all right? And, and, and please don't go wrong with these, okay? So I'm just going to read again verses 38 through 42, okay? So it says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone force you to go one mile, go with him two miles, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who borrows from you. All right, now, the really dangerous thing about that, that section I just read is that what most people want to do with that, what most people want to do with that is they want to push those to, to the most legalistic, ridiculous limit 
in order to show that they don't really have to obey them, okay? That's really what most people do with it. They, they, they want to push it to where it's unloving. They want to push it to where it's ridiculous, okay? When, when really the clear and indisputable teaching of this passage is that kingdom people will love with God's kind of love. That, that, that's all Jesus is really saying here, all right? And we're, we're going to unpack those verses, but I want you to see the big picture. The big picture is God is saying, my people, my people of the kingdom, the same people that are, are going are to let go of their anger and reconcile, the same people that are going to fight against lust, the same people that are going to keep their marriage commitments, the same people that are going to, their yes is yes and their no is no, those people, those kingdom people are going to love others the way that I love. That, that's essentially what he's saying, all right? But when people read and I for, or, um, turn the other cheek and, and give to anyone who, who, who begs from you, you know, what, what, what we by nature, I think, want to do, it's, it's really frustrating, is we want to push those to the ridiculous, unloving scenario in order that we basically can, can disregard them. That's, that's what so many people do with this passage. So in other words, here, here's what I hear happening all the time. Someone will take verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So can you hear the conversation? So pastor, what you're saying is that if the meth addict comes up to me and says, you know, I, I need to go buy more drugs. I'm begging you. Please give me some money. You know, and you're like, all right, Jesus said, give to the one who asked, you know, uh, what's your dealer's name? What should I write that out to? You know, I mean. Isn't that what you see people do with these, right? I mean, I mean, we, we, that's what people do. And, and the, I think the whole intent is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press this, this difficult, hard thing that I really don't want to obey, and I'm afraid of what it really means, so I'm going to press it to the extreme so that I can in some way just dismiss it, right? So people take verse 39. Um, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to him the other also. Usually what I hear on this one is, so you're saying the police shouldn't stop bank robbers? You know? Uh, so so is what Jesus is saying here is that murder, murder comes into my house and, you know, he, he, he knifes me in the chest and I'm on the floor bleeding out, you know? And he's like, you know, is there anybody else that I can knife? And I'm like, yeah, the girls are upstairs and to the right, you know? I'm not going to resist you. Listen. There are incredibly clear teachings in the Bible about all those things, aren't there? Right? Aren't there incredibly clear teachings in the Bible about the role of police and the role of government and the role of soldiers? Aren't there incredibly clear teachings in the Bible about who you ought to give to and, and, and how you ought to give? And, and, and isn't Jesus' big point here that you ought to love? And in all those situations, you're not loving, right? I mean, I mean there's, there's really clear stuff in the Scriptures to help us with this. I, I think that when we treat the Scriptures that way, really, we're just afraid that what Jesus is calling us to is too radical. And we, and we got to find a way to say, surely he doesn't really mean all that. But here's the reality. God's love is radical. It is. Like, like his love is lavish. It is need-meeting and blessing-giving and beyond what you can imagine. God's love is a kind of love that really doesn't make sense. I sat with a, a person this week in my office just sharing with them the gospel, and, and I, was so, I was so blessed by their, their honest response, and they just said, I, it's just hard for me to believe that Jesus would take my junk on himself. And I, I know it is hard to believe. Like, I almost love that you see that. That you don't just take it for granted. I almost love that you're being jarred here to say, does anybody really love that way? And I get to tell you, yes, Jesus does. He, he loves that way. 
That, that's what his love looks like. It is radical. It's lavish. And, and guys, please, here's what he's saying. He said, my kingdom people will love like that. Now, is that complicated? Yep, yep, it, it, it always is. Man, loving people is hard. It, it really is. Like, it's complicated. I mean, it, 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 it's difficult. It doesn't make sense at times. But the, the principle of love still stands. So, so let's, let's, with that in mind, let's take a closer look, okay? Let's not, let's not treat this passage like we're trying to get out of it somehow. Let's just say, okay, what kind of people are we to be in the kingdom? So verse 38, all right? So Jesus said, you've heard it said. So people are saying this, right? This, this is what the, 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 the rule keepers of Jesus' day, okay? These would be the uh, um, pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm a good person, folks of today, right? How are you getting to heaven? Well, I'm, I'm getting to heaven because I'm a good person. So what do those people say? Well, they say things like this. Verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. All right. Now, now, when we when we go back in the Bible and actually look that up, like like it's in Exodus twenty one twenty two through twenty five. It's in Leviticus twenty four eighteen through twenty. Uh, I'll read you one of those. Uh, how about Leviticus? Leviticus uh, twenty four eighteen. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done for him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, uh, a person shall. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Uh, and he goes on and gives a whole bunch of other scenarios. Basically, this is God describing civil public justice, right? So God is establishing his people Israel, and he's saying, all right, my people, we're going to live in a just society, right? There's, there's, there's going to be laws, and there's going to be you know, accountability for how you live. And, 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 and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a limit on retribution. It, it, it wasn't describing personal vengeance. No, it, it was actually limiting vengeance. It, it was basically the principle that we live by today. I think in Latin it's called the lex talionis, I think, that the punishments should fit the crime, right? The punishment. So in other words, when you get caught speeding, you know, the, the guy doesn't execute you on the spot, right? Aren't we glad for that, right? Some of you are really glad. You've been executed 20 times already, right? Like, we're glad he doesn't come out and you just, you know, you get shot, you know? You were speeding. You were 66 and 65. Bam, you know? That's a great miscarriage of justice. Well, aren't you guilty? Yeah, you are guilty, but the Bible, see, the Bible is establishing this principle. The, the punishments fit the crime. And the reason we need an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is because none of us do that really well. You go in our nursery right now. Go in our nursery right now and just watch the kids. You know, this happens all the time. One kid will take the other kid's toy, right? Now, what should happen is, no, you got to give the toy back. You know, you, okay, give the toy. That's right, but that's not, that's not what the little kid wants, right? Like, in his nature, you took my toy, so I'm going to take the toy back. I'm going to push you down to the ground. I'm going to beat you with the toy now we're even, right? I, I, that's what we feel, right? Well, that's why we need an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, because it is a limit of retribution. It's justice. The punishment should fit the crime. But the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the rule keepers, actually took that out and said, this is the way we love people. I'll love you unless you do something to me. And then if you do something to me, by God, I'm going to do it back. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Is that the righteousness of Jesus? Is that, is that the way kingdom people live? I tell you what, there's a whole bunch of Northwest Oklahomans that live just that way. And they will tell you, I'm right with God because I'm a good person. Because an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I get my, I get my piece of flesh, but I stop it at what's fair. 
Well, how do you know what's fair? I decide what's fair, right? I mean, isn't that great? Like, when you're a rule keeper, you just get to make your own rules. This is why this is such a popular religion in our day. It's because rule keepers get to make your own rules. This is the righteousness God requires is this. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Did you hear that? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now again, what, what, what do we want to do? We want to find a scenario in our mind where we're like, see, no, this has got to be wrong. He doesn't really mean that. He doesn't really mean that when someone you know, slaps me or insults me or demeans me that I actually need to turn the other cheek, right? So, so we want to find a scenario. I've, I've heard all kinds of them. You know, well, what if like someone's holding my baby, this villain's holding my baby over a bridge and, and, and I'm trying to get to him and one of the villain's henchmen comes over and hits me and am I just supposed to, you know, just turn the other cheek and let my baby, you know, as if that happens all the time, right? Uh, you know, just the other day, you, you were on the bridge, weren't you? And the villain was, you know, right? right? Like, like we create these scenarios in our mind trying to say, you know, push Jesus. And, oh, you don't really mean that I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. Yeah, no, he really does. Now, let me just give you permission. If someone's hanging your baby over the bridge, do whatever you can to get your baby, okay? All right? That's what Jesus wants you to do. That's not what we're talking about, are we? What we're talking about is what you and I live in every, every day, and that's a slap. The word is slap. It's not punch. There's a different word in the Bible for punch, actually. But the word is slap, and, and, and slap is really important here because it's an insult, right? So you know, villains probably don't hang your baby over a bridge very often, but I bet you get insulted a lot. I bet, I bet someone takes a cheap shot at you quite a bit. I bet someone dishonors you or you feel belittled or you feel humiliated. Someone lashes out in an insulting, demeaning way. And here's what Jesus is saying. The love of the kingdom doesn't retaliate back. Right? God's kind of love turns the other cheek, which essentially in an insult means maintains a posture of friendship. In the context of an, of an insult, in the, concept, in, the con, uh, in the context of someone demeans you or humiliates you, to turn the other cheek is essentially not to square up for battle and not to retreat, I'm done with you, but it's rather, hey, I still want to be your friend. I'm, I'm still here. I, I turned the other cheek and, and I, I'm actually still posturing myself because I'd, I'd love for us to get through this. I'm not sure why he insulted me. But you know what? It might be true. Maybe I, maybe I need to give some thought to that. But I'd really love for us to work this out. That's what it means to turn the other cheek. And you know what? That situation happens, what, like every day, right? Like, like Jesus is talking about the everyday nuts and bolts of life. Look at verse 40. If anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's a situation where someone sued you, came after you, and they won. <laughs> and they, they took your, your cloak, which in that day would have been, or your tunic, which in that day would have been a very valuable piece of clothing. Now, now your cloak was your kind of blanket for the night that you wore around when it was cold. It, Jesus says, give him that too. What's he saying? Again, don't, don't, don't go overboard, right? Don't create this situation in your mind. I know you want to, don't, don't, don't you? you know? hey, Pastor, you're saying someone sues our church for preaching the gospel. We just go get the title deeds out of the, the, uh, the, the pot box at the bank and just give them it all, you know? 
Come on, guys, right? What, what's he talking about here? He's talking about when, when, when people take from you what they shouldn't, whether your time or they take advantage of you. And, and what's Jesus saying? Hey, go overboard. Go overboard in giving to them. Give them more than you're compelled to give. Verse 41, go the extra mile. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. In this day and age, it was um, a common thing where a Roman soldier had the right by Roman law that he could make you carry his pack for a mile. So Roman legion, maybe they were walking, walking through town, marching through town. He's got this heavy back with his shield and his sword and his food and his extra clothes and all that. He's been marching for 20 miles, and he's like, hey, you, yeah, I'm getting a break. You're carrying my pack for a mile. You're on your way to pick up your kids from soccer. Or you're on your way to work or whatever, and you don't have a choice, right? You got, you got to carry this guy's pack a mile This guy who is an invading army in your country, right? They're an occupying force. The Jews did not want the Romans there to begin with. And yet they had to carry their baggage a mile. Jesus says in that situation, in the situation that someone is inconveniencing you, someone is putting an unfair burden on your life. How often does this happen, guys, right? When when someone asks something of you that is really inconvenient, you know, that's more than, than you think you ought to have to give. And Jesus says, hey, in that situation, go the extra mile. God's love is lavish. It goes overboard. It pours it on. Verse 43. Another, you've heard it said. Okay, so this is what the scribes and Pharisees are saying. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, so this was their standard of righteousness. So again, they're building their case for why they're good people, right? And so what's their case? Well, we we love our neighbor, which they defined as the people that we like and the people that like us, right? And we hate our enemy, right? Which is everybody I don't like and everybody who don't likes me. Well, man, isn't that super convenient? You can you can really we could all be like, man, we're all, we're none of us are sinners, right? Because we always like the people that like us, and we we don't like the people that don't like us. Okay, so that, that was their standard of righteousness. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting that they, brutal, they brutally butchered the Bible in this case. So verse 43, you shall, you shall love your neighbor. They, they left out as yourself. And then hate your enemy actually isn't in there. Uh, the, the only way you maybe could find this is in like David with the imprecatory Psalms where he's crying out to God for justice. But nowhere in the law does it tell the Israelites that they're to hate their, their, their enemy. And not, not only that, but they'd wrongly define neighbor. Do you remember in Luke 10, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, how that deal goes? Uh, the guy comes up and asks Jesus, hey, what do I need to do and in, in, in inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And it says, in, in Luke 10, 29, it says, uh, trying to justify himself, um, it says, he said, well, exactly who is my neighbor? Right? Because that's, that's, that's the question we'd be asking. Well, okay, so in order to be righteous, in order to be in the kingdom of God, I've got to love my neighbor as myself. Well, okay, but who is my neighbor? Let's, let's define who that is. And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is essentially your neighbor who's, who's ever in need. Whoever you come across in your life who's in need. So, so the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's not God's righteousness. That's picking and choosing who you'll love. That's justifying your hatred toward those you don't love. And, but Jesus says, love your enemies. 
Now, I would bet that a lot of you would say you don't have any enemies, and that's, that's really a wonderful thing. I'm glad for that. Maybe some of you would say, no, I do have some enemies. Um, but, but let's try to define enemy. I think most often, especially in the context that we live in, an enemy would be a, the rude, inconsiderate, selfish, dishonest, greedy, pushy, prideful, gossiping, irritating, frustrating people in your lives. Now, if you do not have any of those folks in your life, I admire you. I, I'd love to hear your story, you know, that you got nobody in any of those categories in your life. I doubt it. I think you probably do. And, and so God is telling you, the kingdom kind of love. My people will love those people. All right? Now, question you might be asking, why? Why? Why, why, why should I love those people? Well, I, I mean, so you can be in the kingdom, obviously, but let's, let's, let's grab into this text, and I want to give you three uh, particular reasons why I think you should love your enemy, why the Bible says you should love your enemy, okay? So the first one is in verse 45. It says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So, so first of all, the reason you ought to love your enemy is so that you can be a son of your Father. Now, not so you can become a son. Careful, careful. So what we don't want to do is, oh, how do you become a Christian? How do you be right with God? Okay, number one, you turn the other cheek. So someone hit me so I can turn the other cheek. I really want to go to heaven. You know, Number two, you give your cloak away. Let me go see if I've got an old coat in my closet that I can give to somebody that I don't really want. Number three, I need to walk the extra mile. Hey, can I do that in my workout? You know, uh, Can I do that? And then number four, you know, give to a beggar, all right, dollar, the guy holding the sign. Phew, I'm going to heaven, right? See, that's that's what that's that's the life of a rule keeper, right there, right? Is that you're all right? Give me the four things, all right? If this is what I got to do, I'm gonna do the minimalist. I'm gonna tweak it so it's to my advantage in every one of these, and then I'm gonna consider myself righteous, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that you prove to be a son of God when you love this way, all right? The way you become a son of God is realizing as you read the Sermon on the Mount, what do all of us realize as we read this sermon? Anger, right? Lust, uh, divorce, oaths. What, what we all, when we read this, what we realize is we've all blown it. We've, we've all just completely destroyed our chances of being good enough to get into heaven, and we desperately need a Savior. That's what we, when we read this sermon, that's what we get. I desperately need a Savior. I need one who will come from heaven and live the perfect life like Jesus. We need Jesus' life lived on our behalf. And then we need Jesus to die on the cross, which he did as a penalty-paying substitute for my sins. And then I need a way to be joined to him by faith so that his righteousness comes into my account. That, that's the only way I can become a son of God. All right? Now, now I, I would say there's a lot of you in this room that have say, I've done that's happened to me. That happened to me, Pastor. I can give you my testimony. I can I can tell you about when, when my eyes were opened to see that Jesus is everything that I that I need, that he's the greatest treasure, and I turned away from my sin and I put my faith in him, and, and, and now he lives in me, and I'm joined to the righteousness of Christ, and I'm saved by his blood. Then what Jesus is saying here is then God's gonna teach you to love like he loves. That's what he's going to do in you. That, 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 that's how it works. That's how the kingdom works, right? Jesus is showing us what children of the Father look like, what they act like. And then he's saying, I put that in you, so I'm going to change you to be like that. So here's how it works. Every one of us in this room who is a believer, okay? So if you're a believer here in this room, 
You have experienced the radical, lavish love of God. Think about this for a second. Think about it. Think about the cross. That's kind of cool. Think about the story of the cross. Jesus' face, was it not beaten and he remained a posh, in a posture of love? Well, did that happen? It did. Like literally, when you think about it, turn the other cheek, Jesus was beaten in the face. It says the, sol- the soldiers struck him in the face and he remained in a posture of love. All right? Is it not true that Jesus' robe I don't know if he had a cloak and a tunic, but what it tells us is that his robe was stripped from him and that the soldiers gambled for it and he remained in a posture of love. And not only did he let him take his cloak, but he gave them his own life. Is it not true that Jesus went the extra mile carrying a cross to Golgotha to pay for your sins? Is it not true that when you begged of him as his enemy and you begged of him for salvation, is it not true that he lavished upon you the riches of his grace? He's done all that. And you've experienced it. If you're a believer here today, you have. If you're not a believer, I want you to experience it. But if you're a believer, like you've you've been loved that way. And, And now what's Jesus saying? He's saying, now I'm going to put that kind of love in you. And you're going to love others that way. So number one, to to prove our sonship. Number two, why should we love this way? Because you value the kingdom more than you value your earthly gain or losses. You know, when when you think about all these things here, um, turn the other cheek, um, uh, give to those who ask of you, walk the extra mile, um, all, all of those things, they all boil down to loss, don't they? Right? So when someone slaps you, when someone insults you, what, what's the deal there? Why, why does that bother you? It's because you're losing your dignity, you lose your pride, you lose face. Right? When someone sues you and you lose your tunic and you give her your cloak away, you're, you're losing things. Right? When someone compels you to walk a mile and you go the extra mile, you're, you're losing time and convenience. You're hauling someone's load. You're, you're losing your money or possessions to the one who begs or borrows. It's loss. That's, that's what we struggle with. We, we struggle with losing things, but, but I, w- I would just ask you this. What have you, listen, what have you gained in Jesus? Let's talk about loss and gain for a second, right? Like that, that's what bothers us about this kind of th- stuff, right? Is, hey, that guy insulted me, you know, and then he, 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 he left me with the lion's share of the work and walked off to go to the lake, you know, for the weekend. There's loss. Oh, yeah, but, but what have you gained? In verse, uh, where's that at? Verse 46, in that in an interesting verse. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? So Jesus, he's pointing us. Get, we'll get into a bunch of this in chapter six. But what, what reward do you have? What, what gain do you have? Jesus talked a lot about gain. What, what's it gain a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Remember that? Number three, what Why should we love this way? Look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, don't don't misunderstand. That word does not mean sinless, okay? Now, we know that because 1 John 1, 8 tells us that if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. The truth's not in him. It doesn't mean sinless. But as you look that word up in the Greek, it means complete, full-grown, mature. So it's it's like God starts something in you in salvation, and then he's working it out of you. So like, if you're a believer here today, what's happened to you? you? You received, you experienced the love of God in you. And now, as, as those sweet, irritating, frustrating people come into your life, God's love starts coming out 
See, it's finishing. It's completing. It's being perfected in you, right? It's, it's coming into you, and then you're growing up in Christ, and it's being perfected in you. It's, it's actually, this kind of love is transformative. I mean, I, I have found that my heart changed. I'm like the Grinch, you know? My heart grows like four sizes whenever I love my enemy. There, there's something about that that is super sanctifying in your life. God is perfecting you through his love. Verse 46 says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Don't even the worst of sinners. That's what he's saying. Don't even the mob boss. Verse 47, he says the same thing about the Gentiles, people that don't know God. In other words, he's saying this. There is nothing supernatural about giving to and greeting and helping and being patient with people who love you back. So if your standard of righteousness is you treat your good friends really well, great. So do mass murderers. So do Hitler. That's essentially what he's saying there. There's nothing supernatural about that. But you know what? There is, some, there is something supernatural about loving your enemy. When you do that, you display the kingdom of God. You put it on display for the world. There's something incredibly evangelistic about loving your enemy. Real quick, how? How are we going to do this? Okay, so let's, let's follow Jesus here. So look at verse 44. So practically, how are we going to put this in? So if the love of God has been put in you today, you're a believer, it's been put in you, God is perfecting that love in you, it's going to come out of you. How's that going to come out of you? Okay, number one, you're going to pray for those who persecute. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, in, in a lot of ways, praying is both the easiest and the hardest way to love your enemy. It's the easiest in that it doesn't demand any great sum of money or possession loss or any of that. It is the hardest in the sense that when you pray for somebody, truly pray, you're, you're genuinely seeking their good. It is. It's possible, Dan and I know this, and Gary from just doing benevolence, it's possible to actually give, give somebody the physical things they want or need, but your heart is not really in a posture of love toward them. But my experience is, is that it is hard for me to be a fraud and a phony when I pray. It's almost impossible. And so to actually pray for that frustrating, irritating, demeaning, insulting person in your life, to actually pray for them, and ask God's riches upon their life. Ask that God would pour out his spirit upon them. Ask that God would transform them. Ask that God would make them a trophy of, of his grace. And that's, that takes the highest of motives, I believe, to do that. And you're in good company. Isn't that what Jesus did from the cross? Isn't that what Stephen did as they were throwing rocks at his head? They prayed for their persecutors. Number two, greet your enemy. Look at verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You know, even the Gentiles do the same. So, so he's saying one of the ways that you love your enemy is by greeting them. Now, I love this because if your enemy lives in the same town, same family, goes to the same church, plays the same soccer league, shops the same grocery store as you do, then you have opportunities to see them. And when you do, like, like this, is, this is one of those universal, like, how do I love my enemy? You don't always have an opportunity to do something like big for them. But you almost always have an opportunity to say, hey, how are you? It's good to see you. How's your family? How's your kids? 
How'd the game go the other night? Fires get close to your house? Greet, greet them. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's just like really applicable way to love your enemy. Now, sometimes you get left hanging. Has that ever happened to you? I've had some notable times in my life where like you extend, right? And then it, it doesn't come back, you know? That's awkward. I never know what to do. I, I, I mean, I don't know what you guys do. Like, I don't know how long to leave it there, you know? I don't know whether to try to play it off, you know, like uh, stretching, you know, or fixing the hair, or I think I dropped something, you know? I, I, yeah, I, most of the time I'm just like, I got it out for a while, and then, you know, it's just, just kind of. It, it can be awkward to greet your enemy. Um, I had to happen one time at a, a men's function. It was really, it was like a, a you know, big Bible deal. Like, and I was like, head of, it, was, it was really awkward. Uh, kind of everybody's watching. Nothing. Okay. Be still. I, I, I tell you what, th- that ended well, though. Not, not right away, but it did. Greet your enemy. Number three, meet their practical needs. So number one, pray for them. Number two, Greet them. Number three, meet their practical needs. Look in verse 45. So verse 45 says, um, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Listen, listen to what God does. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he makes sins rain on the just and the unjust. God's, God waters the atheist crops. Have you ever thought about that? God sends sun on the agnostic. On, on the people that curse him, God does good things for them. And you're supposed to be a son of your father. Man, I'm telling you guys, there is no more powerful display of the gospel than when you and I live this out. We don't, we don't take these, go the extra mile, turn, turn the other, other cheek, and we don't take them and press them to the, to the ridiculous so that we can say, see, I, I, geez, they didn't really mean that. No, he did mean that. We're supposed to live this way. Not, not in an unloving way, not in a ridiculous way, obviously. But, but we're supposed to live in a way that makes us look like our Father. And this is the way He's loved us. Man, if you're here today and you've not been loved this way, as I talked about the, the lavish love of Jesus for you, I, I want you to have that. I want you to know that, that everything I said about what Jesus has done is true. And He will do it for you. If you'll turn from your sin and put your faith in him, he'll do it for you. He'll save you. He'll lavish his riches upon you. If you're a believer here today and you're like, okay, that's, I'm, that's me. I'm a son of my father. It's, it's really not a choice whether you live this way or not. If you are a son, God's doing this in you. He's perfecting it in you. And you, can, you can fight against it and make your life miserable and be disobedient. Or, or you can today surrender and say, okay, God, I trust you. I trust you. I trust your whole gain-loss thing. I trust it. I'm just going to step out, and I'm going to be obedient to you. I'm going to see what you're going to do in my life. And I hope you'll respond today. Father in heaven, we ask for grace. We ask for um, help. God, we ask for hearts that will obey and will step out and believe and trust. And, and God, we ask that you would enable us to love our enemy. God, I pray right now that you just put flashes, pictures, little uh, 
slideshows in people's minds of those they need to love, those they need to greet warmly this week, those they need to pray for, maybe beginning right now, those they need to meet a practical need. Maybe there's a way that, God, you would show us that we can, we can respond with money or time or effort in being a blessing to those who, who've not been a blessing to us. God, we want to be like you. We ask it in Jesus' name.